the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, fighter world, and you can probably hear in the distance the takeoff of a wedge tail, and there's a relevance to that with my next interviewee for our centenary podcast, Barry Kelly, fighter pilot, a slightly different career, I've been told. Barry joined the RAAF on 106 pilots course in June of 1978 and graduated from 39 Mirage course in June 1980. He was posted to 75 Squadron Butterworth, Malaysia, And in July 1982, he underwent fighter combat instructor course and was posted to two operational conversion unit for instructional duties, teaching on Mackie and Mirage aircraft until uh, June of 1984. In the latter half of 1984, he completed an F-18 Hornet conversion and became aircraft carrier qualified while at Strike Fighter Squadron 125, based at Naval Air Station Limor, California. He then spent two years with the U.S. Marine Corps at El Toro in California. In 1987, he took another step in his career as three squadron fighter combat instructor and RAAF Hornet low-level display pilot. In uh, 1989, or from 1989 until 2007, he joined Cathay Pacific Airways and was Hong Kong-based. At the moment, he's with Boeing on the E-7A Wedgetail pilot trainings team, and that uh, Wedgetail has now taken off. No, there's another plane taking off before I... And trust me, that's not a Wedgetail. Barry, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Gareth. Yeah, um, I guess the... Uh That's the beauty, Barry, of this interview and all of the others. It's real. Go for it. Yeah, and both my worlds taking off together. So uh, I haven't flown the 35. That was the last noise you heard. But uh, thanks for the welcome, mate. So do the wedge tails go up with their 35s and work in conjunction with them? Yeah, quite often. What's the role of the wedge tail in such an exercise? Oh, wedge tail... um uh, provides what most people would know as uh, GCI or ground ground control, plus a whole lot of other things. Not, no longer ground control now, but air-based. Uh, and the advantage of that is there's no terrain or buildings in between uh, the radar and the things that it's looking for. The other things it provides is battle management, battle space management, um, and linking of uh, various things to all the players in the uh, theatre of operation. So does that mean then in an actual operation, the wedge tail would be a target that the enemy would want to get to? Yeah, but um, of course that would be mitigated by where the uh, wedge tail's placed in that area of operations as well. And um, because of its uh, radar capability, it doesn't need to be. Um, there that goes close. another one. So it can be quite a number of kilometres or clicks away from the actual fighters. Yeah, that's correct.
I, I think we'll keep on talking over that. Well, look, it, it was 1978, Barry, that you joined the RAAF. What was the motivation? Why? Uh, well, I guess it started way back. Um, when I was uh, young, my dad was in the Navy, and um, we were based at uh, Naval Air Station at uh, Albatross. So as a young kid, I guess subconsciously, I used to see these guys flying overhead all the time and thought it would be a pretty neat career. Dad saw that interest and started bringing some books home for me. Uh, and then it all went from there. He was the one that pushed me towards the Air Force rather than the, the Navy. But uh, as you've outlined, I fulfilled the, my uh, ambition to land on a carrier later on with the US uh, forces. Well, actually, a little bit later, get to the landing mm. on a carrier because when I was interviewing Truckee or John Carr, mm. he made some comments about landing on a, an aircraft carrier and night landing. And he said, if you ever get the opportunity to talk to Barry, talk to him about that and talk about whether a person is scared when they do it. But we'll come to that in just a moment. Yep. Um, 106 pilots course, what was that? Yeah, well, there was uh, a bunch of us all turned up at Point Cook in uh, winter 1978. Um, among those people uh, were a later Chief of Air Force and a Chief of Defence Force. There was 44 of us uh, turned up from memory, and I think um, including the Navy and Air Force guys, about uh, 22 of us graduated. Backstep a second. Mm. You said your dad was in the Navy and you saw the planes taking off and that, mm. that grabbed you. Does a person have to become, uh, sorry, to join the Air Force or become a pilot before they can go into the Navy and become a naval pilot? Or when you join the Navy, can you train to be a pilot with the Navy? How does that work? Yeah, um, I'm talking about my time, I guess. Things things have changed a little since then. But uh, in my time, um, the guys who were in the Navy first started at uh, Creswell down that way and uh, did all their uh, Navy uh, organisation and admin training, I guess, for a, want a better word. Uh, and then um, after that, they came to Point Cork after we'd completed the similar thing in the Air Force and did their pilot training. Their pilot training was identical to what uh, we went through in the Air Force. So a naval pilot and a, then a naval pilot and Air Force pilot, they can interchange with each other, really, if they wanted to. Yeah, we did the same pilots course. Yeah, Same and, pilot. Yeah, and um, of course, in those days, Navy had fixed wing as well. So who teaches then a pilot? a naval pilot to land on an aircraft carrier? Do they have to go back to an Air Force person or is it done by naval personnel? No, it's done in the operational squadron or the training squadron uh, in the Navy in those days. Yeah, You join, as you said, the 106 Pilots Course in 1978 and you get, you get introduced into the fighter course. How did that transpire? What, what, is, what was involved in that happening? Yeah, at the end of pilots course, we have this uh, thing called postings night where you figure out or you're told where you're going. Um, before then, you put in a bunch of preferences. I never really believed I was good enough to get on um, on fighters. I knew that uh, they were looking for some um, good manipulative skills, for want of a better word, uh, to be a fighter pilot. You know, lots of people who had great manipulative skills didn't go to fighters because they didn't want to go there. But um, I did um, and was lucky enough to be selected along with um, three of my compatriots. What is a manipulative skill? Oh, I, I guess it's the ability to uh, position um, an aircraft in space um, 
uh, and do that with a degree of accuracy, I guess. You know, formation flying would be uh, an example of it. You know, flying in close proximity to another aeroplane and um, staying in the same position relative to him. To test that, what have you got to do? Tap yourself on the head with one hand and rub your stomach with, in the round circles of the other? How do you test a manipulative skill? I guess um, on pilot's course, it's just assessed by uh, how you can produce the um, exercise that uh, your instructor wants you to produce. Hmm. Um, and some of us um, do it well at, at some things and some of us, like me, uh, at other things don't. You know, I, I remember um, having a bit of a struggle with these sorts of things uh, while I was at the basic flying training school, 1FTS in Point Cork. And as soon as um, I got into uh, a Mackie where I didn't have to worry about the rudder too much and pilots would know what I'm talking about there, the balance of an aircraft changes as you speed up or slow down or as you increase power and slow and and decrease power in a propeller aircraft, whereas in a jet aircraft, uh, rudder's not required for for that when you're speeding up and slowing down. So as soon as it took as soon as it took that third dimension away from me, I managed to actually uh, control an aeroplane reasonably well. So in the course, you talk about some things are good you were good at, mm. and some you weren't. Mm. How did those instructing you deal with your strengths and your weaknesses? Yeah, look, a lot does depend uh, on uh, who's teaching you. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad instructor, but uh, in my lifetime I found out that it's no shame if you're not getting through to a student and quite often you can do the student a favour by um, giving um, him to or her to someone else um, to try something different on. It's just a matter of uh, coming up with the key phrases or the uh, the one thing that um, all of a sudden crystallises what he or she is trying to do and um, all of a sudden they get it for a want of a better word. So in your early times then, would you say therefore that the instructors within the RAAF are so good that they can identify, well I'm not getting through to this person, let's try Mary or John to get through to them? Is that is that fair enough assessment or... Yeah, I think I think so. Like, like every profession, there's good and bad doctors, there's good and bad mm. um, instructors um, and um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad, maybe they're just not experienced enough to have seen a lot of things um, and um, you know I'm still learning from people how to do it properly. Tell us about your first months within fighter course what was it like what did you have to go through what did you do what were this, the highlights and the lows? Oh, look there's there's a few people who may or may not listen to this but uh, there's a few people who can tell a few stories about those first months you know certainly throughout my life um, there's been a lot of people who um, have given me the leg up to to get to things that I wanted to get to you know it's not because I'm super talented I've just been lucky enough to be in proximity to and have people uh, around me that have taught me to do things and if you can reproduce it then um, you gradually become better and better at it. Yeah but Barry that really does say that you are talented because if you can't listen to what you are being told and don't pick up on it and implement it then you're not talented so you either Mm. so I'm not going to ask you to comment on that let's Mm. just take it you are talented. What about the 39 Mirage course? Oh look we we started with with six great guys um, and um, you know we worked very hard the rest of the guys on that Mirage course will also tell you we played pretty hard as well as we did in those days. It was um, difficult. 
Um, imagine coming um, from a Mackie, which um, you know uh, had a maximum speed up around the 350 knots mark, and uh, going to an aeroplane that flew at Mark II. Uh, you know, it was roughly 60-70% um, faster on finals. Um, you know, Mirage on finals was uh, doing 100 and you know 75 knots in round terms. That's over 200 miles an hour on final. Mm. Um, so things happened a lot quicker and a lot faster. So that was the big difference for me. A former wing commander once told me that flying a Mirage, if the engine stops, you're in a brick. True? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it has worse aerodynamic characteristics than a brick, yeah. To give you an idea, if we were doing a forced landing in a Mirage, we're at 15,000 feet overhead the airfield to get on the ground. Ouch. So mm. how, how, do you, how does a pilot control a brick with no engine? Yeah, um, it, it, we just like a glider does. We just use gravity. Unfortunately, the characteristics of a Mirage um, are not uh, as um, aerodynamic, aerodynamic and streamlined as a glider. Okay. Well, you obviously survived the brick course. Yep. 1980, uh, you graduated and you're posted to Butterworth. Was that, was that your first time out of Australia? Actually, it was. In those days, people um, didn't uh, travel a lot overseas. Um, but, um, yeah, it was my first trip out of, a, uh, of Australia. Tell us about your first experiences at Butterworth as an RAAF personnel. Oh, look, it was a fantastic experience as a young man. It, it also gave you a springboard to see the rest of the world as well. And from there, I uh, went to, you know, the US and a, a few places in Asia and Canada and all that sort of stuff. But uh, work experiences was first operational uh, fighter squadron. There was a bunch of uh, older men there who uh, really looked after us, young guys or boggies as we call them. And, um, you know, learnt a lot from them. And I, I guess that's a... a uh, a, a key facet of my life you know I've had a bunch of good mentors throughout my career who really looked after me and uh, 75 Squadron was no uh, no different to mm. any of my other experiences. And now as an Australian and a young person in the RAAF posted to a foreign destination what was the relationship like between the citizens of that country and the RAAF personnel? Oh it was fantastic yeah um you know, we we not only worked there, but we also lived there, and um, that included all the things that young people do. You know, going out to do uh, your shopping, your eating, um, uh, going out, uh, meeting people. Um, it was, you know, on the other side of the island, there was a large uh, tourist destination as well, so there was lots of um, lots of people around. Was the Air Force uniform readily identifiable as that's an Australian? Yeah, we came to and from work in uniform, so uh, it was, uh, and there was a large contingent of the base that lived on Penang Island. In those days, there was no uh, bridge across; it was only ferries. Mm. So, um, uh, on the ferry, um, everybody was in uniform, travelling yeah. to and from Penang Island. So, when you're on duty, um, what's the routine uh, for uh, you mm. during that duty period? What you have to listen for alarms or What's the duties? Yeah, um, look, it, it's similar to the rest of the Air Force. We had uh, reporting time at work. Um, from memory, it was around um, uh, in, in there just before eight, and um, we worked until five. Um, you know, uh, Butterworth is in the tropics. It's uh, from memory, it's um, like four degrees north, so just uh, above 
the equator in the northern hemisphere, so uh, it's subject to tropical weather. So typically we'd have, um, you know, heavy rain and thunderstorms uh, in the early morning and then again in the uh, mid to late afternoon. Mm. I know when it's really pouring down with rain and you're driving a car on an expressway going at 110k on the M1, for argument's sake, mm. it can be pretty hairy. What's it like in a mirage when one of those tropical storms hits? Yeah, um, you, you try not to be airborne because there's two factors there. Um, it's very difficult to see the runway, particularly in a mirage, the way it flies on final. Uh, and the characteristics of its windscreen being flat, the water tends to pool there, um, even though it's going quick. Um, <clears throat> and the second um, uh, characteristic is that uh, in the tropics, as anyone who's been hit by one raindrop in the tropics uh, like would realise they, so they get soaked. You know, they're very big, uh, big rain, so that makes it very difficult to see out the front. But so. surely there were occasions when you were in such circumstances? Yeah, we tried to avoid it. The other thing with the Mirage, of course, it didn't have much fuel. So um, we tried to avoid um, heavy weather. So uh, we, we would quite often be in contact with the ground about what the weather was like. Uh, and um, we could also uh, have um, supervisors on the ground uh, flight commanders and such and COs looking out for weather approaching the field. Sure, sure. Is there weather radar within the cockpit of the plane? It's not specifically designed, well the Mirage, it wasn't specifically designed um, to be weather radar but it worked quite well to see weather okay. if, you, if you needed to. Barry, you talked about instructors a little while ago. Um, you must have taken on a fair amount because you became an instructor of Mackies and Mirages in the early to mid 80s. Uh, how did that happen? Um... Yeah, uh, I think... Don't be modest. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 thinking back on it, um, I think I became an instructor way too early. Um, and there'd, there'd be a guy um, who uh, is back in my history, a guy named Bob Chaplin. I'll never forget him uh, saying um, when, when, he, when I asked him about uh, what he thought of my posting to, to ACU, he says, mate, I think you're doing it too early. Um, and he said it in the nicest possible way, and it was based on his life experience. And and maybe you know um, Bob was right, and I wish that I'd taken taken his advice. But on the other hand, you think to yourself, well, I wouldn't have done the things that I ended up doing because uh, everything hinged on going to OCU. So uh, maybe I did it too early, um, and I had I wasn't as worldly as I should have been in the um, instructional game. I hadn't had enough life experience, but I tried pretty hard to make up for that and talk to a lot of people who um, were uh, had been in that game for a long time. That, for me, is slightly confusing because you get a posting. It's you, Can you reject a posting? Oh, surely if the Air Force has said, this man is ready to be posted to his instructor, mm. surely they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, they probably they probably did, but uh, I'm just being um, self-centred and thinking about uh, me. And I thought, yes. um, look, it all turned out well, um, and I, I I owe a lot to the people that put up with me through uh, to ACU, teaching me how to teach people. And um, you know, you can't pass on a lifetime experience of instructional ability, but uh, there's several guys in my life who tried to do that for me. But you do look back and see that as a very important part of your development within the RAAF. Yeah, absolutely. It was the start of the teaching for me and it and it's never left me, really. There was a short short period of time in Cathay when I, I didn't have to think about that sort of stuff. But um, 
but um, in the Air Force and then later on in uh, Cathay the, and then now in Boeing, um, it, um, it is a big part of my life. Well, you're teaching in the Wedgedale, so... Yeah, yeah. So you you still you never stop teaching. Mm. Mirage, uh, Mackie's Mirage, and then the Hornet. Mm. What were those steps like? Oh, well, the biggest I guess the biggest leap for me was Mackie to Mirage. Um, and um, for for people who've who've flown the Mirage and and never flew the Hornet, I, I guess the biggest parallel I say to them is that the the um, uh, Hornet is a lot like the Mackie, except it has a whole bunch of systems and about four times as much thrust. You know, so um, the uh, it flies. It's easier to fly the Hornet. Uh, I mean, just flying around the circuit, landing the aeroplane, taking it off, and all that sort of stuff. It's a much, much more difficult aeroplane to operate. The Hornet. Oh yeah. You know, all the sensors that you have available to you, all the information that you can get available to you, and those aeroplanes that you heard take off just before we, uh, or when we started the interview, the F-35, you know, is another two-generation leap on that. A pilot in a Hornet, you're there by yourself. How much, it must be information overload. You're flying what you've just described as a difficult plane, mm. and you've got all these other dials and configurations and bits of information coming. How do you manipulate your way through that information? Yeah, I guess it's being a filter. You've got to understand what's important right now, um, and the information that comes to you comes to you through all the senses, uh, except for, I guess, smell. Um, so you get visual, you get audio, um, and um, you have to manipulate your s displays and sensors to get the information that you want, all the while flying the aeroplane. And someone is also talking in your cans. Yeah. For my job, mm. simplistic as though it is, sitting in a radio studio doing a radio program, you have cans on, in mm. one ear is you and the person who's producing the show, and the other ear there's traffic and, and the police band. So, mm. And mm. that sounds complicated, but compared to you... That's infancy. Yeah, I think you're being you 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 are being kind, but it's about getting used to that. And the and as you've described in your job, the ability to choose what information is important right now, and all the while not crashing the aeroplane. So, <laughs> yeah, which because that's your most important. There job. lies the difference, Barry. Yeah. Um, so the Hornet conversion course itself was a what what was the instructors like on that, and how did that how did that work? Oh, it was. Uh, U.S. Navy guys, um, and it was great. Um, you know, it was uh, it was great to be in another country, great to be at a, another air base, and great to be flying a, a great piece of machinery. I was lucky enough to be on the program early, so um, and as Truckee may have alluded to, a lot of those aeroplanes that we flew in 125 um, were early prom or early block aeroplanes, uh, which pilots would understand. That just means the guys that were manufactured early on hmm. and hadn't quite had all the wrinkles ironed out of them. So um, there was a few sort of restrictions on those um, aircraft just based on um, in-service experience. Excuse me being rude, but mm. I, I, sh I jumped a, maybe a bit far too quick. Mm. Uh, how did you get to the United States of America? I mean, we spoke a little while ago, mm. you were at Butterworth and then mm. you're instructing on the Mackie and the Mirages. But mm. where did the USA come into this scenario? Yeah, okay. So, um, of course, there was no Hornets in Australia then. So it was part of the acquisition program when we went over there to uh, 
pick up the first two aeroplanes because only two were manufactured in the US, the rest of them were manufactured in Australia. Um, we flew the US Navy aeroplanes and the initial cadre were six pilots from um, who were earmarked to go back and start two OCU um, F-18 version. Yep, yep. And uh, myself, who was um, uh, to go through uh, with the first CO, Brian Robinson, and uh, the and EXO, um, Dave Peach, uh, on the first course and the second course had uh, four four other instructors. So my my job after completing uh, the conversion and the carrier qual was then to go to uh, an operational um, Marine Corps squadron uh, in um, El Toro, California, which is sort of halfway between LA and San Diego for folks who are familiar with the US, uh, and then uh, operate with the US Marine Corps for two years to gain operational experience. You spent a long time then in the United States flying with the United States other, other personnel. Yeah, it was always the Marine Corps that I was flying with, but operating with and around US Air Force um, and um, uh, US Navy. Yeah. And is the Marine Corps' discipline processes different from the Australians or the same? Or I, I think we've, we're quite similar. You know, like... When I was there, um, the Marine Corps was called the bastard child of the uh, US Navy, and I, I don't mean that to be offensive uh, because I've got many great friends in both of those services, um, but it had 200,000 people in it. In those days, the, the entire Australian Air Force had 20,000. So the US Marine Corps, which was a tiny portion of the US Navy, was 10 times the size of uh, the... Um, uh, Australian Air Force. The Marines, anyone to do with the Marines or any American, makes a big deal about simplify their motto. Do you know what it means? Uh, fidelity, uh, always f- fidelity. See, now it's, it's me, me asking the questions. I'm sorry, Gary. That's all right. Always fidelity, yes. Always faithful. Always faithful. Fidelity, yeah. faithful. Yeah. I yeah. got close. You did. I got close. Well done. But what I was going to say is that that simplify empathy, that simplify feeling, mm-hmm. uh, was that pervasive within the RAF? Not the Americans, our own. Yeah, look, we were um, we were a tight bunch of guys over in Lemoore um, and, um, you know, enjoyed our time there and worked pretty hard because we knew we were representing our country. Um, and then when I got to um, El Toro to be with the Marine Corps, um, it was... Um, I, I, they put their arms around us because um, Jill... Um, my wife uh, came over after I'd finished the conversion and uh, we had just a fantastic time there both at work and um, when we were out together socially. Mm. Australians and Americans, we are pretty similar, are we not? Yeah, look, I, I, I you know, 18 months ago before this whole COVID thing happened, I uh, went over there and um, one of the role models in my life was my CO at the time, a guy named Manfred Reach, who uh, had over 600 missions in Vietnam in the F-4, and then later, after my time, went over to um, uh, command a Marine Air Group um, on F-18s for Gulf War One. Now, Manfred, who I visited uh, recently um, in Wyoming, is a guy that I model my, my leadership on. You know, he was always faithful downwards as well as up uh, and always honest to me. So, mm. um, you know, the people you meet through your experiences um, in the Air Force are um, just as important mm. as the things you do. Carrier, 
conversion, sorry, not character, yeah, well, conversion, qualification. How did that start and what was it like? Um, look, the, the Air Force were quite keen uh, that I do the carrier qual um, because that's not necessarily a part uh, of uh, your um, conversion as an exchange officer. It's something that's expected of the native uh, guys, the guys that are in the US Marine Corps. Um, so, um, and I was quite keen as well because of my background with my dad. Um, and I was just really lucky that it occurred. So um, after the embassies talked together and um, after I'd completed some of the con conversion course, um, the US Navy agreed to um, give me a carry carrier qual uh, day night on on the aircraft carrier and that happened right at the end of my course on um, probably turned into razor blades now but uh, Kitty Hawk. Let's take your very first your very first daylight landing on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Take us through that. So that was off the coast of California. Um, uh, there'd been a lot of work up until now Gareth you know it doesn't actually just happen on the carrier you know we uh, we do it at the field in day and night. Um, I won't go through all that, but no, they, no, turn no. All, they turn all the runway lights off except for the carrier landing box on the runway. So you do that on the runway. And then they take you out to a little island called San Clemente, which is off the coast of California. It's about it's one of those islands that just sticks out of the water. It's about 60 feet high, which is the same height of it as a carrier deck. So it has similar meteorological um, yes. um, environment uh, as a carrier. Which, which gives you a little bit, little bit of sink in close to the carrier, and so does the carrier landing Except box. Except the island doesn't rock, sorry. Yeah, exactly, it doesn't move, yeah. So, um, but um, after all that, uh, for the, going back to your question, uh, the first thing you do is you go into the, um, you fly uh, parallel to the carrier, just like you would in the circuit here at Williamtown, you pitch into the circuit, a little lower than we do here, uh, for um, day and uh, then you do um, a racetrack pattern where the end of the racetrack terminates over the carrier deck um, and it's a lot of people don't think about it but uh, on modern carriers they have an angle deck so that if you have to go round or if you don't catch a wire then you don't go off the front you go off the side about halfway up so right. all the aeroplanes are stored on the right hand side yes. so you don't want to be running into those yeah so the first uh the first time you land on a carrier you leave the hook up because the lso's the guys that are guiding you onto the deck um want to see your form before they let you trap on the deck okay so you're coming in barry mm -hmm. you're in the cockpit mm. talk me through it Hook down, or we're doing a. You, uh, you're coming in to land mm. first time on that deck. Yeah, heart rate's pretty high, Gareth. So to best describe it, I don't know whether anyone's ever had a, an adrenaline hangover that's um, that's that's listening here, but it's pure concentration because you know the consequences of uh, screwing this up are serious. If you get a little low and close or things like that, they're going to be screaming at you. And the worst thing that you can end up having is a ramp strike, which is a round down at the back of the boat um, where that would virtually destroy the aeroplane. Mm. Um, but um, so most sensible pilots tend to be a little uh, uh, high uh, and that's the most common thing to happen. Hook down and you don't catch any of the four wires. So that's called a bolter. So I was lucky enough to trap off my first one with the hook down. As you come to a stop, obviously there's a lot of deceleration there. As soon as you trap 
um, and catch a wire or hit the ground really, the first thing you do is advance the power all the way up, not quite into afterburner but uh, full power so that if anything uh, happens or indeed you have a bolt, you the, engine, the, the engine's in the right place to do that. After that happens, um, you come to a stop. You've got to remember to keep your feet off the brakes because if you don't keep your feet off the brakes, um, the aeroplane won't come to the end of the stretch of the cable and then start moving backwards. If it starts to move backwards, that's good because the hook just falls, the wire just falls out of the hook. They'll give you the hook up symbol, sing, signal. They'll tell you to fold the wings, so you've got to get the hook up, fold the wings, and then just watch the guy uh, because unlike Air Force pilots who take notice of their marshaller but also look out, you cannot look away from him because he's telling you minutely how to steer the aeroplane around so you don't hit anything. When you actually, when you actually fold the wings in the Hornet, it goes into what's called high gain no nose wheel steering. So all your movements on the rudder, which actually moves the nose wheel, are amplified. So can you imagine having an adrenal, adrenaline hangover with your legs shaking and the guy in who's marshalling you around can see the nose wheel steering vibrating really quickly or the nose wheel real vibrating really quickly and they laugh at you. But um, Welcome to the US Navy. Yeah, welcome to... Um, <laughs> to USS Kitty Hawk. Mm. Well, all right, that was your first one, and, and it mm. certainly... Uh, do you look back at that uh, and remember that as your first one, and that's one of those highs in your life that really was quite exciting? Well, Trucky said to talk to me about my first night. Oh, we'll come to that. We'll yeah, come right. to that. <laughs> okay. yeah, I haven't forgotten. Don't worry. Right. Don't worry. Because that's the one that is burned in my memory. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, you, were, you were a strike fighter... You were with Strike Fighter Squadron 125, which was mm. a Navy squadron... Mm. Uh, did the Americans in that squadron see you as just one of them or he's an Australian or mm. something else? How did they view you? In 125? Yeah. Yeah, very respectfully. You know, they, um, they recognised us as a, guy, a bunch of guys who were uh, keen to learn from them. Um, and, um, you know, with any uh, instructional duties, it's all about figuring out what sort of students you have mm. and um, they did that pretty quick. They looked after us. Uh, there was a whole bunch of um, issues that I sort of um, alluded to earlier on with uh, the aeroplane being a very new aeroplane and there were some unserviceabilities and if we were new to the aeroplane we couldn't fly particular flight control aeroplanes. But with any program, there's always glitches, and those guys were gracious as and um, looked after us very what, well. What was your rank while you were there? I was a flight lieutenant. And did the American service personnel respect that rank of equality with their own equal ranks? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we were equivalent of a, of a um, US Navy uh, lieutenant or a um, Marine Corps captain. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the first Australian F-18 Hornet on exchange pilot, first Australian to take that role? No, uh, there was... I was, the I was the first in an operational squadron. In the United States. Yeah, yeah. But um, Truckee, of course, was there a year before me or maybe a little bit longer. Um, he was um, in the training unit, which was you know, 125 that I talked about before. And there was a bunch of guys from the test program as well who'd been over there. So um, 
you know, a few others were there. I was the first in an operational squadron. Okay, okay. So, I, so. I will come back to the night landing, mm. but there are a couple of other things I want to talk about first, if that's all right. Mm. I, I believe you were involved or partly involved in a rescue of a friend after an ejection. Was that over there or in Australia? No. Uh, that was in Australia shortly after I got back. Um, the two guys involved were a really good friend of mine, Dennis Hume, or everyone who's listening to this will probably who don't recognise that name will know Rhino because that's his call sign, um, and another fellow named um, Brendan Heslin. Um, those guys had launched out of East Sale, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, in August. So, uh, you know, quite cool weather right in the middle of winter. Uh, the weather on the East Coast wasn't that flash, and um, anyway, they had some icing issues and uh, couldn't uh, restart an engine that had stopped because of the icing ejected uh, in the Barrington Tops, just uh, north or nor-nor-east of us, nor-nor-west of us here. Hmm. What did they eject from, sorry? Uh, it was a Mackie. Mackie, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, and it belonged to um, Central Flying School at East Sale at the time. So what was your role in the, the rescue or part thereof? Well, um, they obviously scrambled the um, search and rescue helicopter out of Williamtown, but uh, my uh, commanding officer at the time... Uh, uh, came to me uh, and said that there'd been an ejection and could I get airborne to help find the aircrew. The Hornet had some systems which could home in on the uh, personal locator beacons that uh, Mm. each Air Force pilot carries um, in um, fast jet aircraft and nowadays uh, in transport aircraft as well. Um, So I got airborne um, and picked up the um, the signal from them immediately and, and ended up homing in on it and used various systems in the uh, Hornet to uh, mark their position. An added complexity to it was the guys in the helicopter who are, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the bravest guys here. Uh, they, they had to fly in under the weather because um, it wasn't uh, an IMC or an IFR helicopter at the time Uh, and in fairly horrendous conditions, wind over terrain, so lots of turbulence Mm. and as any helicopter will tell you, a helicopter pilot will tell you, one of the most scary things is turbulence um, in a helicopter because it can lead ultimately to the rotor head separating. Mm. Um, So those guys uh, flew in, couldn't get his signal because uh, the cloud was very low and they uh, didn't want to fly in cloud uh, and there was terrain between them uh, and the um, and their signal. So uh, once I'd located uh, uh, Rhino and Hezo's position, um, I passed that position to the helicopter guys. So then they got as close to that position as they could. They landed at a farm and um, and they jumped in as all these... Um, helicopter guys could do with their crewies and all that sort of stuff jumped into his truck uh, <laughs> after they'd marked the uh, position on a map and they drove with the farmer as close as they could to that position turns out they found Hezo walking along the fire trail road there so they found him unfortunately Rhino uh, was up in a tree now hanging he was hanging, yeah, rhino in a tree, imagine that. Um, so um, um, he, he, um, he, he was up in the tree, the wind was blowing quite hard, it was raining and I believe snowing uh, and he was 
about um, I'm told ten or twelve meters up. So wow. it wasn't uh, an option. Cut the rope and drop. Yeah, no. yeah. So, but unfortunately, it was freezing. After I homed in, homed in on them, uh, they um, I came on. I flew over the top of them, and as soon as I flew over the top of them, they knew someone was there. So they both they both came on the radio, and you ever had a, if you haven't heard a scared man talking on a radio before, um, two of them is twice as bad. So uh, the first thing I said to them is, "Settle down, guys. I know where you are. There's a helo coming." And um, after about five minutes of talking, uh, that calmed them down enough. Anyway, these guys eventually picked up Hezo, as I said, and then uh, they went to uh, Rhino's position and had to make a bush ladder to climb get up, up the tree and get him down. And by that stage, um, he was very, very cold. So if we hadn't have found him, um, it wouldn't have been uh, a nice outcome for uh, Dennis. That obviously is a rescue that you remember, just like your first landing on the, on the, the deck of the, uh, the aircraft carrier. Yeah, because Rhino was on the pilot's course after me and we were very good friends. It meant a lot to me. Yeah, I could imagine. A low-level display pilot... What is that and why were you doing it, 1987 to 1988? When the Hornet uh, came back, of course, 2OCU were the only guys that had it and there was a few guys before me who who did it, but 2OCU's primary job was to train guys. Um, So um, initially Dave Peach was doing it, who I mentioned earlier on, and then um, Chief of Air Force and um, Chief of Defence Force Mark Binskin, who was also over in Lemoore with us at the time, Mark did it for uh, a while, and Mark actually um, showed me uh, when he he did his show what he did, um, and uh, no use reinventing the wheel. Maybe I added a few little different things based on my knowledge of the aeroplane in the Marine Corps, but um, mm. Mark uh, taught me. And then um, we, I then did it in '87 and '88, which just happened to be during the bicentennial air show. Mm. It was a good thing to do, but it wasn't your real job. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah I know what you it, mean. But it had a great. It, it, it was a great effect on uh, recruiting and uh, for the air forces. Oh, look! It looks job. impressive when you see it on the screen. Yeah. How dangerous is it? You know, of course, it's dangerous. Um, we try and make it as risk-free as possible, and without boring you with the details, just things like um, you know, when it, when the Hornet does that slow pass, one of the worst things that can happen during that slow pass is an engine failure. You can make it extra impressive by slowing down even more to you know you know i did it at 25 degrees angle of attack but the canadian guy used to do it at 35 degrees angle of attack Mm. so that's the nose attitude of the aeroplane as it's flying along problem with 35 degrees angle of attack is it's very very hard to recover from if you have an engine failure in fact next to impossible so i did two things um to risk mitigate it i flew higher and i flew at 25 degrees angle of attack but you can make it look the same by sure. flying further away from the crowd because by flying further away from the crowd, the angle is lower and it looks and like it the looks... aeroplane is lower. What's it like to travel Mark II where the sky is black in the day and be by yourself? That was during my time on the Mirage and um, the first time I really did that was um, at Williamtown but also did it in Butterworth a lot. Look, it, it's unique. It's, it's an experience that y- you, you, you can't really relate to other people. Maybe other people don't know, but the higher you fly, the, more, the darker blue the, the sky gets until eventually... It's black. It's almost black. Would you equate it to driving in a car where the windscreen is blacked out along a highway? No, no, no. 
No, no, no. You can see everything. Except you're just used to looking above you during the day and seeing a a blue sky, whereas now now it's black, um, and um, you can you're high enough to see the curvature of the Earth, and you also um, let's get that plane. I'm guessing F-35. Was Sounded like it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, if you don't know... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, go on. Yeah. Um, Seeing there were two, it was an F-35. So you're flying Mark II. Yeah. How many Ks an hour is that? Ooh. Roughly. Yeah, good question. Um... I think, uh, you know, it's 670 odd, 660 odd knots, so uh, you could roughly double that. Um, so 1,200 kilometres an hour. Yeah, 1,500 miles an hour, that's, so 2,500 kilometres so black, an hour. Is it like you talked about the tropical, mm. flying in tropics in Butterworth, mm. is it the same or is it different? The, re- the reason I talked about um, it in Butterworth is because... Um, the high altitudes are a lot colder in the tropics, mm. um, so the aeroplane can get there a lot easier to that speed. Um, and um, we quite often had a flight plan um, from Butterworth to Singapore uh, in those days where we'd fly Mark II from Butterworth, which was up near Penang, down to Singapore. And the only regulations we had was we weren't allowed to be at that speed within 30 miles of uh, Singapore, KL or uh, Penang. Mm. And I think the record is around in the region of 15 minutes from Butterworth down to Singapore, which, okay. is, which is 500 and something kilometres. You get there real quick. We do. Yeah, yeah you do indeed. All right. Let's go back to the night time mm. and the carriers and landing. I'll tell you what Truckee said. He said, ask Barry about landing at night. And if he says he wasn't frightened, he was lying. You tell me what your first yeah, night. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with, um, with Truckee. Case three recoveries, which are night and uh, IMC recoveries onto a carrier, are, are different. Because you can imagine the carrier is completely block, blacked out except for the landing deck. Uh, the box that you land in, the one I talked about that they had on San Clemente, it has just a, a thing that we call the meatball or the ball. And uh, at night time, you would come in either off a similar to an ILS approach for pilots that are listening. It's called an ACLS on a carrier. And there's a few things that you would do but once you're in close so inside uh, a couple of miles uh, you would normally disconnect and just fly manually the ACLS system has the the ability to take you onto the deck but no pilot that I know would hand over his life to a a system so coming onto the carry you've just got to have ultimate faith in the LSO he can see things that you can't like he can see the deck moving, he knows when the deck is moving up or down, and then he has to predict in the future when what it'll be doing when you get there. So you actually wow. have to you actually have to tell him have put your faith in that guy, and every time he gives you an instruction, do it, do it. Yeah, landing on a carrier is slightly different to landing on the field, where pilots uh, who are Air Force trained will change their aim point, the position they're going to in space by lowering the nose of the aeroplane. Uh, you can't do that when you're landing on a, on, a, on a carrier because you want the aeroplane to stay at the same attitude so that it's in the optimum attitude for the hook to catch the wire. Mm. So you control your glide slope via power and uh, I had to learn to do that 
which was completely different to what I'd done for the rest of my piloting life. You just go back to when you're landing in daytime, you can see the person and you talked about you keep your eye dead on him. It's nighttime. How do you see him? No, we, we still use the same system, the ball, but at nighttime, that's all you can see is that green horizontal line with yep. an orange circle in the middle of it moving up and down, and that's the ball. Ah, right. So you might have heard the, all those movies where, where they're talking about the ball. The ball is the, um, the glide slope uh, indicator. Thank you. I didn't know mm. what it was. Now mm. I do. Thank you, thank mm. you, thank you. Mm. Barry, you've had an illustrious career. Do you remember when you left the RAAF? Yeah, yeah, I do. It was um, in very early 1989 and I left it to go to Cathay Pacific. So it was shortly after the Bicentennial, Bicentennial Air Show, which was, I think, from memory, October in 88. From, with such a background, you could have chosen any aircraft. Cathay Pacific, what, what was the motivation there? Look, um, I'm talking to the pilots now, they'll understand. Um, when you go in those days, when you went to an airline um, like Qantas, and that was my only other option really, you became a second officer, which uh, was not a flying role. It was just a, a cruise relief pilot, and then eventually you moved up through the rank system. Um, so I didn't want to do that. Um, I was keen to go overseas. We didn't have any children at school mm. or anything like that, so that was a factor as well. Um, I was going to go straight into a control seat um, and progression at Cathay Pacific at that time was a lot quicker than mm. um, back home with Qantas. So what brought you back to things like the wedge tail? Um, look, uh, I guess when you've flown long haul for a long time and there's a lot of guys maybe listening to this will understand that um, you know eventually you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, uh, you, you know waking up in somewhere that's exactly 12 hours out to your to your time zone otherwise in other words when the sun is rising at home the sun's going down where you mm. are mm. um and uh then being away from your family and all that sort of stuff um you know eventually uh, you realize that the the life you owe your children um, maybe is not where you are. If mm. you want them to be Australian and know what it's like to be an Australian kid, you need to come home uh, in time for them to do that. Barry Kelly, fighter pilot extraordinaire, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. You really have had an illustrious career and you have demonstrated once again, as have all the other people I've been talking to, that joining the RAAF as a career can be a remarkable thing and achieve many great things. So, Barry, thanks for your time and thanks for your commitment to Australia. Yeah, you're welcome, Gareth, and uh, thank you for treating me so kindly. I'd, I'd also say that one of the highlights of my career is not what I've done, but the people I've met. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on 
in the proud tradition of Pur Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.